This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is part of a long series about how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of season three. We started this season talking about the rise of communism and socialism, then moved to capitalism, even spending a fair bit of time on labor unions, workers' rights, and some more liberal ideas. So we could understand that there were lots of different ideas about what constituted a Christian response to poverty and workers' rights which led to the New Deal, a clear example of social gospel ideas in the political realm. And I know that was a lot of information, right? Well, now we need to talk about another economic ideology, one that was claimed by a lot of Christians as well, and still is. It's called libertarianism. Now, what is libertarianism? Like any ideology, there are lots of variations. So many. Generally, it is the idea that the government should stay out of people's lives as much as possible. Taxes? No. Or at least they should be the bare minimum. Restrictions on trade? Get out of here. Commerce, manufacturing, and business of all kinds should be left to the whims of the market. Is a company behaving badly? pulling an Enron, Lehman Brothers, or Standard Oil, then people will just stop going there and put it out of business. That is just a brief summary. It gets more complicated in the details. After the Great Depression, the U.S. saw the rise of prominent Christian libertarians. They were there before, of course, but programs like those of the New Deal sparked concern in their minds because Congress and FDR started to crack down on big businesses. The minimum wage, safety standards, not to mention protection for unions and antitrust legislation. All of that would be bad for large corporations. Okay, so to be clear, we need corporations and businesses to keep things humming. Don't let our discussion of a few bad actors make you think I'm attacking all businesses. That's just silly. What we're doing is looking at the country's growing pains during and after the Industrial Revolution, as we tried to figure out how to go from farmers and -and mom-and-pop shops to factory workers and companies that were so big that the collapse of just one could ruin the entire economy. All of that while communistic Russia was at the height of its murderous rampage against its own citizens. Some looked at labor laws, unions, and the New Deal as atheistic communism seeping into American life. So they fought back in a lot of ways, one of which was advertising. That's right, today we're going to explore the weird world of advertising religion as a force to fight communism. It's a story of religion, big business, one of the most popular blockbuster movies of all time, and the Declaration of Independence. Well, some of it, anyway. 
You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truths. December 1940, the National Association of Manufacturers held their big conference. In attendance were people from Rockefeller's Standard Oil, General Electric, General Motors, a whole bunch of generals apparently, and Sears, all the big shots. It was an industrial conference held during the Great Depression, just before the US joined World War II. The Russians and Germans had already invaded Poland, the Germans themselves took control of Norway, Denmark, Belgium, France, and others. The Soviets were well-established in Russia. Meanwhile, back at the convention, these bigwigs hobnobbed. Suits, ties, firm handshakes. Humbug, quarterly projections, synergy, market cap. Think about these businesses. They had a lot to lose with the New Deal. If you were going to handpick a group of people who probably didn't like FDR's plan, it would be the National Association of Manufacturers. Someone who was organizing the event invited a minister to address the crowd. The Reverend James Fifield bowled them over, passionately preaching against the New Deal. Leaders of industry had been told that they were the reason the Depression happened. Browbeaten despite all the jobs they created. Despite ushering us into this new age of technology. Fifield was there to tell them that they were not the problem, but our salvation. Essentially, Fifield's argument against the New Deal went something like this. Number one, it infringes on God-given liberty. Two, the New Deal makes a false idol of the government. Instead of looking to God for your help, it encourages citizens to turn to their government. Number three, it encourages the poor to covet because they want the things that the rich possess. Number four, it bears false witness in that it's a lie and will not be able to come through for the people. This is a staged reenactment and not a quote. There were a few more reasons that libertarians like Fifield were against the New Deal. Evangelists in the 17 and 1800s emphasized salvation as an individual experience. You have to make a personal commitment to God. Therefore, the logic goes, Christianity is individualistic. So, if you want to make a Christian society, honor the individual. Communism, socialism, and the social gospel look after the collective. Therefore, we should go the other way. Trumpet the rights of individuals. And of course, as I've said, the New Deal was seen as evidence of creeping socialism in this country. It's easy to mock this now as alarmist, but with communists murdering millions of their own people in Russia, and communism is the utopian version of socialism, then socialism seemed like a logical first step to inviting that kind of persecution here in the U.S. Fifield was an instant success at the National Association of Manufacturers. According to historian Kevin Cruz, capitalism and Christianity had often been compared. But Fifield's innovation was, and I'm quoting here, 
the insistence that Christianity and capitalism were political soulmates. This, by the way, is not the opinion of all Christians. Many Christian leaders like FDR saw the New Deal as the Christian thing to do. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We covered that a few episodes ago. Today is about Christian libertarianism. The world was about to get a lot more of James Fifield. So, okay, who was this guy? He was the pastor of a church of 4,000 people in Los Angeles, the largest Congregationalist church in the world. It had a drama club, to be or not to be, a radio ministry, don't touch that dial, we've got lots more coming up, and college-level courses. Your paper on the subject is due next week. It was also known as the Church of the Well-Connected. People like legendary filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, who will factor into this story a little bit later. One chronicler of Fifield described him as the Apostle to Millionaires. Fifield was paid the equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars a year in today's money. Not too shabby for a preacher. He printed a full-page ad in the LA Times denouncing the New Deal. Now, before you say, this guy must have been a fundamentalist, think again. He wasn't a fundamentalist. Instead, he believed that you could pick and choose which parts of the Bible applied, and that capitalism and Christianity were the same in his mind because both allowed you to succeed or fail based on your own merits. Again, this was not the only opinion held by Christians. It was just one of many. It wasn't just his preaching that made him famous. Fifield started Spiritual Mobilization, an organization that disseminated his speeches and ideas. Now, here's something that really struck me while I was researching this season. Big organizations like this one are basically marketing agencies. So was the moral majority in the 1980s. All of their influence came from their ability to spread their ideas far and wide. Spiritual mobilization sent tracts to over 70,000 ministers in the U.S. condemning the New Deal. It read, in part, We ministers have special opportunities and special responsibilities in these critical days. America's movement towards dictatorship has already eliminated checks and balances in its concentration of powers in our chief executive. Fifield straight up implied FDR was a dictator. Someone get Fifield a mic so he can drop it. He also opposed the U.S.'s entry into World War II. His advisory committee was a who's who of the politically connected, like leaders of the Chamber of Commerce, the largest lobbying organization in this country, and Norman Vincent Peale, author of The Power of Positive Thinking and future pastor to the Trump family. This religious organization was backed by millionaires like the founder of the Firestone Tire Company and J. Howard Pugh Jr., president of Sun Oil. Not that there's anything wrong with that, I'm just giving you some context. Spiritual mobilization faced a problem though. It wasn't enough to just mail out materials. They were worried that people would see the money behind it and discount the movement. They needed it to feel like a grassroots campaign. 
they had to get ministers involved. What better way to get pastors on their side than with a shared enemy? Have ministers see the threat that faced them? So they enlisted over 10,000 clergy as representatives at the local level to make it seem less like a highly financed advertising campaign and more like an organic movement. Once they did that, requests for materials written by prominent libertarians and politically connected people like former President Herbert Hoover started pouring in, encouraging ministers to preach on themes hand-picked by spiritual mobilization. Another way to get ministers to talk on these themes was to hold a sermon contest. Turn now on your Bibles to Genesis, where God addresses Adam Smith. I mean, Adam. Just Adam. In October 1947, they encouraged clergy to write a sermon on the theme, The Perils to Freedom, and you could win $5,000, which is about $57,000 in today's money. A lot of cash for one sermon. Something like 15% of all the clergy in the country sent in a submission. Now that's a tremendous amount of influence. And if you wrote a sermon... Why not preach one? Now think about that title, The Perils to Freedom. The title alone invokes fear. And also, because it was preached from a pulpit, people will equate freedom in this country, as defined by the Libertarian Social Mobilization Organization, with Christianity. Which is their right, but is also controversial. Now, what did the critics think? Well, some saw this as a marketing campaign aimed at tying Christianity, capitalism, and patriotism together. A controversial idea. Also, this campaign used fear to motivate people, which is effective, but may not give folks a full picture of the debate. When preaching from a pulpit, those messages felt a lot like a grassroots movement, instead of what it really was. Finally, the contest was sponsored by some of the largest corporations in the world, seeking to keep their assets, discourage labor unions, and anything that restricted a free market. They were using this backdoor way of fighting the unions by getting churches involved. So this gets complicated pretty fast. Messages weren't just spread by pastors, but also by public service announcements. Radio broadcasters were required to air a certain number of PSAs. Now, radio stations were hungry for anything to play during this time because it could be expensive to produce their own PSAs. Spiritual mobilization filled that need with their regular 15-minute program called The Freedom Story. It featured cautionary tales of government overreach, praising moments in history when the government didn't regulate industry while also touting the benefits of religion. By 1951, the broadcasts were heard on more than 800 radio stations, much of it financed by a steel manufacturer, which again, was their right. They also started a monthly magazine called Faith and Freedom that claimed it was an open marketplace for ideas for ministers. It really wasn't, though. It ended up repeatedly denouncing the minimum wage, price controls, veteran benefits, social security, and unemployment insurance. 
as well as the social gospel. In other words, it was a libertarian magazine. Now, that magazine supposedly didn't quote-unquote back a candidate, but put forth a bunch of questions to lead you in a certain direction. If it proposes to take the property or income of some for the special benefit of others, does it violate the commandment, Thou shalt not steal? If it appeals to the voting power of special interest groups or to those who have less than others, does it violate the commandment, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. In 1951, Spiritual Mobilization's leaders decided that for the 175th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, that the nation should celebrate with events throughout the country. So they formed the Committee to Proclaim Liberty. The CPL enlisted celebrities from Ronald Reagan and Walt Disney, Bing Crosby and Cecil B. DeMille, to Herbert Hoover and General Douglas MacArthur. The event was to be sponsored by American Airlines, J.C. Penney, and Fred Maytag. Fred Maytag. I wonder what company he owned. This patriotic spectacle was a public opportunity to preach libertarian conservatism. The main event of this celebration encouraged people to read the Declaration of Independence out loud. Now, what could be better than that for a people who championed freedom? Well, this is where it gets a little weird. Have you read the Declaration lately? It spends some amount of time outlining King George's refusal to let the colonies pass laws of their own. In other words, the people wanted more government, but George wouldn't let them have it. Did you get that? The colonies wanted to form more government. Now, that could be tricky for the CPL. This is from the Declaration of Independence. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. First off, I did not know that the word manly was in the Declaration of Independence. You learn something new every day. But from even a cursory reading of the Declaration, it's easy to see that the people were upset that King George was shrinking the colonial government. They wanted more government. Which doesn't really work with libertarianism. In order to get around that, the committee edited those pieces out. These celebrations were held all over the country with CBS's radio network airing a special tribute organized by Fifield and movie director Cecil B. DeMille, and starring Jimmy Stewart, Gloria Swanson, Bing Crosby, and Lionel Barrymore. The promotional photos featured this phrase, Freedom under God will save our country. General Matthew Ridgway paused his duties fighting in Korea to insist that the Founding Fathers had been motivated by their religious faith. Okay, so now is another good time for context. I know it's hard to layer these stories on top of each other, but Verity and Fifield existed in the same time period. It was the same era of Billy Graham's early career, which we'll cover in a few weeks. These guys inhabited the same world, tying Christianity to capitalism and capitalism to the United States, creating public displays of piety that would later bolster the Christian America camp. Fifield wasn't the only one marketing religion in America. In towns all across the country, 
there are literal monuments to this movement in parks and outside government buildings. Monuments not only to advertise morality and religion, but also a blockbuster film. We'll continue our story after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. In Minnesota 1947, a young man stole the family car and went out for a joyride. In the process, sadly, he struck a pedestrian. At his court hearing, the judge had an unorthodox idea. Have the boy learn the Ten Commandments. Now, sounds like a good idea, right? There are a lot of solid principles there. Don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. All good stuff. The judge didn't stop there. He figured it would be good for all Americans to learn these principles. So, in 1951, he, along with the Fraternal Order of the Eagles, started placing framed copies of the Ten Commandments in schools and courthouses around Minnesota. Now, these important rules could be seen in public places by anyone who could read. Now, don't forget, societies need people to act in a moral fashion. That's just reality. And religion can accomplish that. That's what the American Founding Fathers thought, too, though they weren't really specific on which religion. The story about the judge caught the ear of one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, Cecil B. DeMille. DeMille was a regular attender at James Fifield's church and a supporter of spiritual mobilization. He directed films like Samson and Delilah and King of Kings and produced even more. He even made an appearance as himself in the classic black-and-white film Sunset Boulevard, which is one of my personal favorites. DeMille and Fifield had a lot in common. It's like they were meant to be buddies. They were both Christian libertarians. Wait, you're a libertarian too? Sweet! They both hated the New Deal, like loathed it. Awesome, no way, me too! DeMille did not get along with unions, and Hollywood is full of unions. I once worked on a film as a first assistant director, and let me tell you from personal experience, the Screen Actors Guild did not make things easy on filmmakers. Hopefully, they've gotten easier to work with. Anyhow, when DeMille testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1945, he compared unions to Nazism, fascism, and communism. The DeMille Foundation for Political Freedom was partially dedicated to fighting unions. 
including advocating for right-to-work states. You know, this is just me, shooting from the hip, but I don't think he liked unions very much. You see, DeMille and Fifield were meant to be friends. We should totally get matching tattoos, bro. Bible films did really well in this era. DeMille decided to remake his Ten Commandments film that he'd made several decades earlier. This one would go on to become the eighth highest grossing film in history when adjusted for inflation. And it wasn't just Christians who attended. The Ten Commandments appeals to Christians, Jewish people, and Muslims alike since the story appears in all three traditions meaning a much bigger market than for a strictly Christian film. In fact, the head of research for the film used texts from all three religions to fill in the gaps. Because, listen, the Bible account is kind of cut and dry. How are you going to fill a whole movie with a text that takes 20 minutes to read out loud? Now, if you're not familiar with it, the story of Moses has it all. A boy who escapes murder then floats down a river, only to be saved and raised in the Pharaoh's palace. That same boy from an enslaved tribe grows up to lead his people to freedom. Let my people go! Defeating an evil empire with a powerful tyrant leader by following God's commandments. Now, what other evil empires do we know of? Oh yeah the Nazis, fascists, and communists. It's no accident that a libertarian chose to make this picture during the Cold War and so soon after World War II. There's even a trailer you can see, I'll post it on the website, where DeMille himself steps in to advertise for the film. This is me doing my best Cecil B. DeMille. Are men to be ruled by God's laws? Or are they to be ruled by the whims of a dictator, like Ramesses II? Are men property of the state? Or are they free souls under God? The final words spoken by Moses in the movie quote scripture. And not just any scripture, but the same verse that was printed on so many of the materials distributed by Fifield's spiritual mobilization. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That's Leviticus 25.10, and the same verse that's inscribed on the Liberty Bell. The verse doesn't have a whole lot to do with liberty the way you think of it. It's actually part of a command to keep the year of Jubilee from the Old Testament, something that Christians don't do. Anyway, it's worth looking up on your own. In preparation for what would become one of the biggest movies of all time, someone had a bright idea. Wait a second. The Fraternal Order of the Eagles is already distributing paper copies of the Ten Commandments. We could build monuments across the country and advertise for the movie at the same time. And so that's what they did. DeMille had taken a trip to Israel and at Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments, he picked up a piece of red granite, keeping it as a souvenir. So it was decided that the monuments should also be made of red granite. From Wisconsin. They didn't ship it all the way from Israel. Together with the Eagles, they donated 4,000 six-foot-high red granite monuments of the Ten Commandments. That's 4,000. That's a lot of monuments. 
the film producers even arranged for the actors from the movie to appear at some of the unveilings. Yul Brenner went to the first of these in 1955. Charlton Heston attended another in North Dakota, where 5,000 people turned out for the unveiling. There's even a list where you can find monuments in your area. I'll post a link to it on our website. My brother and I looked up the closest one to us and took a drive to see it for ourselves. We're here in Idaho Falls, and we're two hours away from home, the closest Ten Commandments monument to us. We are right by the actual falls, and there's a free outdoor ping pong tables that we can't play with because of COVID-19. Very That's disappointing. That's right, but it's nice to see. It is nice to know they're here. It is blazing hot today. Okay, it's supposed to be here within a few blocks. There is a shaved ice stand. Oh. That's looking real good right now. Real good right now. <laughs> uh, man, I'll tell you, they really love their monuments here. Okay, so there we've got a monument that has, looks like four wolves circling around a uh, stump. tree stump. Yeah. Some bears? Wow, there's more bears here than we see in Yellowstone normally. This is great. And still no Ten Commandments monument. Oh, wait a second. We walked right past it. <laughs> That's right, I'm right next to the monument here. I'm gonna walk around to the front. It is a red granite monument that comes up to basically my eyes. There's a plaque that says, this display is not meant to endorse any particular system of religious beliefs or intrude into matters of religious worship. As a historical precedent, the Ten Commandments represents one of man's earliest efforts to live by the rule of law. Many of these ancient pronouncements survive in our jurisprudence today. Presented to the city of Idaho Falls by Idaho State Auxiliary Fraternal Order of Eagles, June 1969. And I, I see now why uh, the bears are here, because it says, thou shall not bear false witness. <laughs> And the that bear. is a false bear. Yeah, it is a false bear. <laughs> very There's, literal. Yeah. Very little. Right behind the Ten Commandments. Well, if you want to see pictures of this beautiful park and the bears uh, and this monument, you can visit trucepodcast.com. And uh, we're going to head back to the car because it is still blazing hot. Let's see if we can pass up that shaved ice stand. It's hard to believe that monuments all across the country were erected in part as part of a movie campaign. But it's true. And not just any movie, but one that encouraged Americans to fight government control. Directed by a guy who believed in small government and didn't like the social gospel's attitudes expressed in the New Deal. I've gotten some interesting emails and notes over the last couple weeks asking me why are we covering this? Well, there are lots of reasons I wanted to tell you about these advertising campaigns. First, it's important to note that they were driven by commercial interests, not by a grassroots sense of piety. General Motors, General Electric, Union Carbide, and many others were sponsors of James Fifield. And a Hollywood film was a driving force behind many of our Ten Commandments monuments, which is their legal right. Critics argue that these corporations did all of this to fight unions and the New Deal through back channels, making their actions a little less like education and more like indoctrination. Number two, these ads directly tie America to capitalism and religion. Now, pay attention to that. Spiritual mobilization ads did it with words, the monuments, by simply being on public land. Number three, in our episodes about unions, we talked about the battle between personal responsibility and social pressures, 
which one makes people poor or rich? And why are we so bad at thinking it could be a mix of both personal responsibility and social pressures? That all comes to a head right here. The Libertarian Spiritual Mobilization Organization created ads that place the onus of poverty on individuals, not on social constructs. Whereas labor movements and social gospelers were very concerned with those constructs. I wanted you to see those forces at play. Which of those or which combination of those do you think most fits with the Bible? There are lots of disagreements about that. I know it may feel troubling to end this episode with so many questions. Are public displays of piety that are funded by corporations bad things? Or just a little spooky? I know I'm probably going to be accused of being super left-wing for even mentioning that some corporations behave badly without sufficiently saying that some corporations do a lot of good. Honestly, I can't win there. I've tried, and I can't win. In the Christian world, we're used to people telling us what to believe. But I don't want to leave you with easy answers that allow you to hate those people, whoever those people are, to you. The people who don't think like you. I'm going to drop all of this in your lap and let you come to your own conclusions. Hopefully you'll see this like I see it, as me treating you like you're intelligent. Which I think you probably are. I've even written some helpful discussion questions that are in your show notes and on the website right now if you'd like to discuss this with your friends and family. Until then, here's something more to think about. The actions of people like Fifield and DeMille helped to define an era of public faith in America, one that Make America Great Again folks wish to go back to. Now that some people see that era fading, what is our response going to be? Will we fight, or will we love our perceived enemies? Do we put on our Christian face in public, march around in parades, produce radio programs, and build monuments? Or do we demonstrate our faith through our lives? Maybe a combination of both? This week, as difficult as it is, I'm going to leave that up to you. Special thanks this week to Nick Stern and Gannon Castle for being my sounding boards. Some of the resources for this episode include One Nation Under God by Kevin Cruz and The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald. We're going to continue talking about advertising Christian America in an upcoming episode. I hope you'll subscribe so you'll get every new episode as it's released. This week on our website, we've got so many bonus features. A link where you can locate the Ten Commandments monuments nearest you. Take a picture with one and tag us on social media. You can also see pictures of the one in Idaho Falls that I visited this summer. You'll also find an ad with Cecil B. DeMille talking about the Ten Commandments. 
There's so much bonus stuff, and you can find it all at trucepodcast.com. While you're there, remember that this podcast is listener-supported. You're not going to hear stories like this in other Christian outlets. Believe it or not, I wrote, recorded, edited, and posted this episode once before, but took it down before it launched. Then I went back and redid much of that work to make this episode even better because I wasn't satisfied with the old one. That's hard to do with a full-time job. I'd love to be able to produce Truce full-time so I can have the freedom to scrap something when it needs scrapping or rewrite it when it needs rewritten. If you like what you hear and you'd like to partner with me, head over to trucepodcast.com donate to learn how. You can also learn all about my movies, Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, and my novel, Cradle Robber. Thanks also to all the people who provided their voices for this episode, including Sharon Wilharm of the All God's Women podcast and Jared Williams of the Biblical Wealth podcast. Thanks for listening. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Steren, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.